Well, you can turn over in the book of Romans. We're working our way through the book of Romans. Romans, need some air up here. I'm burning up. Okay. Romans chapter 3. It's pretty bad when the preacher's on fire and he's not even started the message yet. Man, that's... Must have been some hot worship or something. I don't know. Romans chapter 3. Uh, we're working our way through this. Hopefully we'll get through uh, verse uh, 20 today, 18, 20. And uh, I've been taking our time as we go through this, and I think it's just so important to do that. Uh, I heard an illustration of a, a lady, a clerk, that was working at a, a department store in the cosmetic, at the cosmetic counter, and she'd been on her feet all day working hard and, and a lot of customers to deal with, and it was getting toward closing time, and there wasn't a lot of customers, and frantically some man ran in and ran up to her and said, my, my wife's birthday is tomorrow, I, I don't know what to get her, can you help me out here, what can you recommend? And she went down the counter and looked, and, and uh, she thought, well, we have these fragrance, fragrances here, um, you know, this, this might be nice, and he goes, okay, well, that's good, and she set it on the table, uh, on the counter, and, and, and he goes, well, how much is it? And she said, well, it's $100, and uh, he goes, that's, that's too much. You know, and she goes, okay, okay, that's fine. We'll find something else. So she goes down and she finds another smaller bottle. And, and he goes, well, how, how much is this? And he says, $50. Sorry, but that's just uh, too, too much for my budget at this point. And so the, the lady was getting a little frustrated, but she said, okay, that's fine. You know, I got to make a sale here. So she dug down there a little deeper and came out with a smaller little bottle. And, and he said, well, nah, this might work. How much is this? And she says, $25. And he said, I hate to tell you this, but, you know, do you have anything cheaper? And she's like rolling her eyes going, okay, you know. So she comes out with this tiny little bottle of the cheapest perfume they had. It was $10. It was like a little ounce. And she goes, look, this is, this is basically one of the, 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 uh, uh, the least expensive ones we had. And, and he goes, well, how much is it? And she said, what's well, $10? And he just went, <laughs> you know, don't you understand? I want something cheap. Don't you have anything cheap? And she reached under the counter, and she pulled out a mirror. And she held it up to the guy's face, and she said, there you go. He wants something cheap. Look in the mirror. You know, mirrors do not lie, do they? Mirrors do not lie. When we look in the mirror in the morning, we get up. I don't know if you look in the mirror before you get in the shower or after. I usually look after, <laughs> except here at least there's some improvement, you know. But, uh, you know, mirrors don't lie. You can't look in a mirror and see something on your face and say, well, I just don't believe it's not there because it is there. Because the mirror shows you usually an exact representation, sometimes an enhanced representation. Some of you ladies have those special mirrors. You know, they got the little lights around them and you look in them. It's like, whoa, I don't know if I want to look in there. You know, your pores look this big, you know, it's just kind of crazy. I don't know why you look in those things. This morning we'll be looking in the mirror of God's word. And for the past several weeks, it hasn't been a pretty picture, has it? It hasn't. Uh, I'm reminded of the doc, Dr. Harry Ironside, a wonderful preacher, preacher. And he was holding an evangelistic meeting. And after the evangelistic meeting, he was talking to some of the people. And he came up to one gentleman and he said, are you saved, sir? And the sir looked at him and said, no, I, I, I really can't say that I am, but I would like to be. And Harry Ironside looked at him and said, why would you? Why would you want to be saved? Do you realize that you're a lost sinner? 
the man looked back at Harry Ironside, and he says, well, yeah, I understand that. We're all sinners, right? And Harry Ironside, yeah, but that doesn't mean a whole lot. Are you yourself a sinner? And the man looked right at Harry Ironside, and he said, well, I, I suppose I am, if everybody's a sinner, but I, I'm a good sinner. You know, I'm not one of those bad sinners. I'm a good sinner. And Harry Ironside looked at him and said, Sir, you're not ready to be saved. See, we need to understand that whether you're a good or bad sinner, I don't even know what that means. It's kind of an oxymoron. If you're a sinner, you're a sinner. It makes no difference to God. The most horrible sin that you can imagine and telling a little white lie, if there is such a thing, a lie is a lie in my mind, is wrong. It's sinful before the Lord. And see, good sinners are kind of like honest liars <laughs> or upright thieves. Heard a story recently of an individual who took something that didn't belong to him. And after they took it, they looked around and they realized there was a camera there. <laughs> so they put it back. Well, they got caught. And when they were confronted, you stole something. The answer was, but, but I put it back. <laughs> I didn't really steal it. See, we, we like to think that our sin is somehow whitewashed, that it's really not as bad as it is. It's hard for most people to admit that they are a sinner. They're hell-deserving sinners. They need God's grace to be saved. Most people, I would say, view themselves as, quote, good sinners. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. They would say, hey, I'm not perfect, but, you know, I'm not as bad as this guy. And so we begin to compare our faults one with another. I'm not a murderer or a terrorist. I'm a pretty decent person. So, yeah, I'm a sinner, but I'm, I'm, you know, a relatively good sinner. You know, those are some of the hardest people to reach with the gospel of Christ. The, quote, good sinners. The people who are religious in nature. uh, The people who somehow think that because they're fulfilling their religious obligations, somehow God looks on them with favor. Maybe they faithfully attend church. Maybe they give money to the church. Maybe the church even has a little stained glass window or a pew with a placard on it saying, this donated by so-and-so. Maybe they serve on the church board. Maybe their family's been the mainstay of the church for years and years and years. See, all those things don't matter when it comes to your salvation. When we look at the words of the Apostle Paul here, before we do that, I I just want to share a little bit about what this really means to us. Because there's a lot of people who would profess Christ who have a wrong view of themselves. In this text, we see this basic principle that all people, everybody, is under sin. We all need the good news that God has provided a Savior from that sin. And so when we stop 
and we think of our text this morning, I want us to, and this is just basically kind of introduction here this morning, as we look through this text, we're going to see Paul changes from almost kind of lawyer verbiage to a physician. And he begins to talk about body parts, begins to talk about the throat as an open tomb. He talks about the mouth that's full of cursing and bitterness. He talks about our feet, that they're swift to shed blood. He talks about all those things, that there's no fear of God in the hearts of people. And so we want to look at this text this morning with these things in mind. And just remember, we have, we, we've come to see here clearly the first thing we looked at was a sinful heart that everybody has. We have a none is righteous, it says. No one understands. No one seeks God. And then we looked at verse 12. It says, all have turned away. That was the sinful character. The sinful character. No one does good. Nobody. And that's a hard thing to admit. The idea that we don't do any good that we don't have just a little bit of goodness down deep inside of us? No. I'm reminded of Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, where the Word of God says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. And look at what it says. And that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. Continuous evil. Continuous dwelling on that which dishonors God. I mean, that verse not only tells us that men and women do not do good as God counts goodness, but it actually tells us they do the exact opposite. They do evil. And not only that, but they do it continually. And it tells us that it starts in the heart. It starts internally. It rises from the thoughts, the inclinations of the heart, Genesis 6, 5 says. And it tells us that it's pervasive. It affects every inclination. That their their deeds are only evil. And that it's also continuous. That it happens all the time. Now, you might say, well, that's Old Testament. Isn't Jesus have some kinder words (laughs) when we turn to the New Testament? Doesn't Jesus, full of compassion and love and concern, and, and isn't it all about the love of Jesus? Well, let's look at some of the words, just in way of our introduction, and then we'll look at the words of Paul. The words of our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. What did he say about this condition? What did he say about our sinfulness? Because you know what? He didn't mince any words. He didn't beat around the bush. There was no gray area. He told us very clearly the gravity of our human sin. In Matthew 5.13, he talked of man as the salt that has lost its savor. In Matthew 7.7, he talked of the man as a corrupt tree, which is bound to produce what? Corrupt fruit. In Luke 11.13, he talked of man as being evil. He says, you being evil know how to give good things to your children. In Matthew 12, 39, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he he basically talked about the generation and he called them an evil and adulterous generation. 
In 1245 of Matthew, he calls them a wicked generation. Over and over again, he, throughout Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, he says that out of the heart proceeds murders, adulteries, evil thoughts, and things of that kind. In Matthew 19.8, he spoke about Moses having to give special permissive commandments to man because of the hardness of their own hearts. In Mark chapter 10, verse 18, we see a rich young ruler who approached our Lord and he said, good master, thinking, hey, I'm going to start this conversation off in the right way, right? Good master. You know what Jesus said to him? Jesus looked at him and said, there is none good but God. Jesus compared men, even the leaders of his own country, to wicked servants in the vineyard in Matthew 21. He condemned the scribes and the Pharisees who thought they were better than everybody else because of their religiosity in Matthew 23, verses 2 to 39. In John chapter 3, verse 6, Jesus made a fundamental statement about man's depravity. He said, that which is born of the flesh is what? Is flesh. (laughs) That which is born of the flesh is flesh. In John six verse or John five verse forty and forty two, he talks about the unwillingness to come to the grace of God. He says, "You will not come to God." In John five forty, in John five forty two, he says, "You have not the love of God." In verse forty three of John five, he says, "You receive me not." In verse forty seven, he says, "You believe not." Over and over, there's certain things that are repeated through the Gospel of John. John 7, 7, the works, the world's works are evil. None of you keeps the law, verse 19. You shall die in your sins, John 8, 21 says. You are from beneath, John 8, 23 says. John 8, 38 and 44, he says, Your father is the devil who is a murderer and liar. <laughs> in verse 47, he says, You are not from God. In John 10, 26, he says, you are not of my sheep. John 15, 23 to 25, he says, he that hates me hates the Father. This is the way in which our Lord spoke to the leaders of the Jews. He brought forth for everybody to see their utter inability to please God in any way. He approached it from a different angle. He also showed us the blindness of man. That is his utter utter inability to know God and to understand him. In Matthew 11, 27, he's basically showing us that no man knows the Father but him to whom the Son has revealed him. In Matthew 15, 14, he compared men to blind, leading the blind In Luke 19.42, he mentioned that Jerusalem itself didn't even understand the purpose of God. And as a result, disregarded the things that concerned salvation. In John 3.18, he says, He that believed not was condemned already, because he had not believed on the Son of God. 3.19, this is the condemnation that men love darkness rather than light, because their what? Their deeds are evil. 
In John 8, 12, he said the only one who has been reached by grace, only the one who has been reached by grace can walk not in darkness, but have the light of life. The Lord Jesus even emphasized that it's essential for man to be saved by the mighty act of God. And he's to be rescued from his condition of misery. In the Lord's Prayer, he says, forgive us our debts. In Matthew 9, 12, he said, the sick are the people who need a physician. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, he said, we are those sick people who need a physician to help us and to redeem us. He said that we are the people who are burdened and heavy laden. The people who were most readily received by the Lord were those who had a sense of need. Not a sense of pride. Not a sense of self-sufficiency. The people he received were those who came brokenhearted. Desperate. Bruised. Totally inadequate in and of themselves. That's who our Savior received. Those are just kind of a glimpse of what Jesus says about our condition. Now with that in mind, turn to Romans chapter 3. I mean, what Paul says here almost seems mild in comparison to what the Lord said. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass, the snake, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin." seems mild in comparison to what we just read as our Lord talking about our condition. Today I want to pick up with the next point in our outline, a sinful mouth. A sinful mouth. And it's important that we understand what he is really talking about here. He's showing us something. He turns, like I said before, from the judge to almost physician. He begins to use certain words. He says in verse 13, their throat is an open grave. Have you ever seen an open grave? Have you ever been around an open grave? See, in our culture, what we do is we take the body of a deceased person, we dig a hole, put them in a casket, lower them down, put the dirt on top. We cover the grave out of respect. That's one reason. But we also cover the grave just for... Sanitary reasons. You know, if you lived in Iraq, you would have the pleasure of maybe walking down a road and seeing heads rotting on stakes. Or corpses thrown alongside the road like they were a dead dog. 
That's not a pleasant thing. It's not a pleasant thing to walk into a graveyard where all the graves are open. That wouldn't be nice. You know, you go up the skyline there and you go, oh, wow, this is beautiful. This is a beautiful place. Not the place of dead bodies, but the scenery is wonderful. You look out, you see the Pacific Ocean. But I don't think a lot of people would be going up there if all the graves, the bodies were just kind of thrown on the lawn and rotting. You wouldn't want to go there. This is what this is speaking of, the stench from an open grave. As a chaplain, I've been around a lot of dead bodies, and a lot of times what happens, you're waiting for the coroner to show up at the crime scene or whatever, and the officers go back to their job, and you're waiting there with the family, and the deceased person, whatever the occasion, is covered up in the next room. And I always remember those times when it happens to be maybe in the winter months, a little cooler outside. And so the house is buttoned up. And after an hour, maybe I've waited sometimes as long as four hours. You know, I start saying, you know, we need to open some windows. This, this, this doesn't feel right. Because the body is literally decomposing. That's what happens to a dead body. And see, here what he's saying is that's what in our fallen condition, our throats are like an open grave. You know, when you go to the doctor and he takes a little thing and they say, ah, and you say, ah, sometimes he says, okay, everything looks good. There's occasions, maybe you have a tonsillitis, you have something, oh, that's not good. (laughs) You know, he sees something he doesn't like. That's what Paul is doing. He's opening up our mouth and looking in our throat and saying, wow, this doesn't look good, folks. This isn't just something that's on the outside. You know, you can have a sore throat and look totally healthy. But boy, every time you swallow, you're reminded, I'm sick. There's something wrong with my throat. And unless you're a doctor who looks down there and finds out what it is, you're going to think, well, okay. Somebody looking at you is going to think you're fine. It says their mouths are like open graves. What that means is all that corruption... All that destruction is coming out. And he's saying this to the Jewish people. I mean, I can just imagine them standing there saying, are you talking to us, Paul? Not us. How could you say such a thing? We say the good things. We say the good stuff. And what Paul is trying to get them to understand is it doesn't matter. It comes from that which is polluted already. Notice he says there, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to what? To deceive. That verb is in the imperfect in the Greek tense. And what that means basically is that it's a continuous action. It never stops. That's all they know how to do. It's repetitive deceit. Have you ever talked to your young person about doing something wrong? And the first time, it's kind of like, look, you know, you shouldn't do this. And okay, I'm sorry. All right. Don't do it again. Okay, fine. The next day, it happens again. Maybe the next hour, it happens again. There comes a point in time where you realize, you know what? This is becoming a habit. They're, They're deceiving. Their deception is becoming part of the way of their life, and we need to stop it. So you have to do something severe sometimes to help them understand that this is not acceptable behavior. And see, for the natural man, lying and other forms of deceit are just habitual. It's a normal part of life. 
In Psalm chapter 5, verse 9, it describes it as flattery. And flattery appeals to what? Our human nature, it appeals to our flesh. It appeals to our pride. He says they use their tongues to deceive. A flatterer, therefore, uses and abuses others. In Psalm 36, 1 to 3, David describes it this way. A man's sinfulness, it can lead to to self-deceit. It can lead to self-flattery. He says, transgression, Psalm 36, 1 to 3, transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for it flatters him in his own eyes. Concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it, the words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He's telling the Jews, you know what? Yeah, you say the right thing. You teach the law. But what does it bring? It brings destruction. See, just because you hear something coming out of somebody's mouth that may seem it's got some truth in it, you better be careful. Most false teachers have just that. They have a little bit of truth. He goes on and he not only talks about it being an open grave. That's one and he kind of says, I'm going to... Come at this from a different angle. He says, the venom of this snake is under their lips. This, this kind of snake was a poisonous snake. Usually as soon as it bit you, you died within a short period of time. One commentator says, the fangs of such a deadly snake ordinarily lie folded back in the upper jaw. But when the snake throws his head to strike, these hollow fangs drop down And when the snake bites, the fang presses a a sack of deadly poison hidden under the lips, ejecting venom into the victim. And it brought forth death. See, he's saying the same thing. He's talking about a grave. He's talking about dying from a snake bite. He says their mouth is full of what? Curses. What's it mean there? Cursing someone is when you wish evil upon them. You get so angry, you wish evil upon somebody. You pronounce it on them. You wish it on them. You afflict it on them. You inflict it on them personally. Maybe someone has harmed you, disrespected you, whatever, and somehow you're going to get revenge and you're going to inflict evil back on them. That's what this is. See, this is what comes out of people's hearts who are wicked, beloved. This is what comes out of people's hearts who are depraved, who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of this came out of our hearts at one time before our salvation. And you notice that in your Bible there's a reference here, and he's he's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from the Psalms. He's saying, hey, this isn't coming from me. This is coming from God. This is God's word. And it's almost as if he says, all right, now I'm done with the Psalms. I'm going to want the prophets to step up here. And so he begins talking about cursing and bitterness. And that's exactly what he does. See, these are, are wicked words from wicked men. They're not just good sinners. They're not just bad sinners. They're wicked people. When we think of cursing and bitterness, we we may just think of the harsh speech, somebody who curses you out. But it really means more than that. 
all of this is kind of boiled down in a nice little couple points by Martin Luther. I think I put that in your outline there. When he was studying this, he came up with this kind of three, three little things here. He said, first of all, these kind of people, they devour the dead. They devour those who are spiritually dead already. Here's what he writes. He says, their teaching swallows up the dead who have gone from faith to unbelief and swallows them up in such a way that there is no hope of returning from the death of this unbelief unless they can be recalled by the most wonderful power of God before they descend to hell as the Lord showed in the case of Lazarus who has been dead for four days. He says moreover that the grave is open because they devour and seduce many people. And he quotes Psalm 14.4. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread? He continues, he says, That is, just as there is, is squeamishness about eating bread, even though it is eaten more frequently than other foods, so also they do not cease to devour their dead, and their disciples are never satisfied. He concludes, he says, Hearsay or faithless teaching is nothing else than a kind of disease or plague which infects and kills many people just as is the case with a physical plague and you don't have to look very far to realize that this is going on not just outside the church but inside the church and the second point there is he he says they teach deceitfully and he relates that to verse 13 their tongues practice deceit it's not just lying. It has the idea that they're actually teaching lies. Isaiah 30.10 says, Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy not to us what is right. See, that's what people want to hear. The world generally doesn't, does not speak warnings about these kind of things except as threats. To other people. And so we need to stop and we need to be reminded, hey, you know what, we're, we're kind of operating in a mind zone here. We have to be careful where we step. And the third thing he pointed out is they kill those who have been taught such things. He says, this same flattering and pleasing doctrine not only does not make alive those who believe it, it actually kills them. And it kills them in such a way that they are beyond recovery. Paul's already said that in Romans 2, verses 8 and 9. But for those who are self-seeking and those who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger, trouble and distress. And so he points that out for us very clearly, that this, this sinful mouth is not just you know, somebody who cusses. It's a problem deeper down. And then he moves on here to a sinful path in verse 15 to 18. He begins to talk about what their feet are doing. Their human conduct is depraved. These are violent acts from violent men. And we're kind of taking these in reverse because it says there in verse 17, the way of peace, right, they do not know. The way of peace, they do not know. And I think that when you understand the whole concept here, 
you'll see why I'm doing this in reverse. Uh, the, the apostle here isn't speaking of the lack of inner peace. That's not what he's talking about. That's kind of characteristic of somebody who doesn't know Christ. But really, he's, he's talking of a man's essential inclination away from peace. That man in his fallen nature doesn't run to peace, they run from it. They know no personal peace. Isaiah 57, 20 says, The wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest. Those waves cast up mire and mud. But see, that affects other people. One commentator, commentator Haldane says this, Such is a just description of man's ferocity which fills the world with animosities, quarrels, hatreds in the private connection of families and neighborhoods and with revolution and wars and murders among the nations. And then he says this, the most savage animals do not destroy so many of their own species to appease their hungry, hunger as man destroys of his fellows to satiate his ambition, revenge, I mean, it's just amazing when you stop and think about that. And that's what Ephesians chapter 2 tells us. It says, remember that you were once, what? Separated from Christ. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Verse 12 there. Having no hope and without God in the world. And then in verse 13 it says this, Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself, listen, is our peace, who has made us both one, who has broken down his flesh by dividing the wall of hostility. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressing in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. Verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came, verse 17, and he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are built, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. People that don't know Christ don't know peace. They don't know peace with God. They don't know peace with one another. And they don't even have peace within themselves, to be honest. The way of peace they do not know. It says, secondly, in their paths are ruin and misery. In their paths are ruin and misery. Again, this is something that wicked people experience themselves. Their way is misery and ruin. 
That word ruin is a compound word, and it, it talks about breaking into pieces and completely shattering, causing total devastation. The term misery denotes the resulting harm that is always in the wake of man's acts of destruction against his fellow man. His destructiveness inevitably leaves a trail of pain and despair. What this means, it's not just in the active, or it's not just in the passive sense, but it's in the active sense as well. Human beings naturally don't just labor to build up each other. No, they seek to destroy one another. Not a pretty picture. The third thing there, he says, their feet are swift to shed blood. This is kind of the last of these deceitful actions. It says their end is death. Not just in a physical, by the way, but also in a spiritual sense. Spiritual death, which is the death of the soul and the spirit in hell. Death itself means separation. When you die physically, your body is separated from your soul. When you die spiritually, your soul is separated spiritually from God forever. Look at Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. I thought this was just a, uh, a very interesting note I heard on, it's actually a uh, Phil from the Duck people, Duck Dynasty or whatever. He said this on um, a program on Fox, and they were asking him about why are these people so much into death? Why are they so quick to run to to death and kill people? And he read out of Proverbs chapter 8, the wisest man that ever lived, Solomon. He says in verse 32, And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways, hear instruction, and be wise. Do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. And then he highlighted this last part. He says, all who hate me, this is God speaking, all who hate me love what? Love death. You wonder why they're lopping people's heads off and slaughtering thousands of people over there in Iraq? Because they hate God. They hate the true God. They're following a false God, a false religion. And so their feet are swift to shed blood. Lastly, they have no fear of God. Verse 18, that's what he says. There's no fear of God. Psalm 36, 1, it says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, when we think of being afraid of something or fearful, we're thinking of terror, you know, we're scared. That's not this kind of fear. It's talking about a reverential awe. It's talking about of a sense of respect before the Lord. And these people don't have it. 
It has to do with worshiping him. It has to do with obeying him. It has to do with departing from evil. Because you fear God. You, you revere God in God's way. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. See, when Romans 3.18 declares that the human race has not done this, it's saying what Paul has been saying all along. They don't have any fear of God. When in fact, in verse 22 of Romans 1, it says, no, they exchanged the glory of God for corruptible things. That's not respectful. We need to be reminded, beloved, of the holiness of God, the God which we serve. Because there's no fear of God before these people's eyes. Verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped. He's saying that more to the Jews probably than to the Gentiles because they're probably going, oh, wait a minute, that doesn't include us because we're part of this little gang that, you know, no, no, no. Everybody's under the law. And if you're under the law, you can't respond. You can't say, no, 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 I think it's this way. No, you can't. Because God has spoken. And the world is held accountable to God. There's no excuse. There's no way out of this. Verse 20, for by the works of the law, even if there was a way out, there's no way you could work your way out of it because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So even if you're better than your neighbor, that doesn't make any difference. You're not going to be justified by being better. You have to be what? Perfect. As the Father's perfect. And none of us are perfect. We'll never be perfect. And if you want to just sit around and study the law and see how much of the law you can keep, well, what's that going to do? That's just going to bring you more knowledge of your own sin. Think about it in your own Christian walk when you first came to Christ. Maybe there were some things in your life that now you look back going, man, I, I didn't even know that I was doing something wrong. I've known people that have come to Christ over the years and, boy, they, they're a new person in Christ and they start coming to church and all of a sudden, you know, you notice something. It's like, well, why are you doing this? Well, I've always done that. Well, you know, the Bible says you shouldn't do that. Maybe it's whatever. Dishonoring their body somehow. Maybe it's sexual promiscuity. Whatever it might be. And you point it out to them, and if they're truly a believer, they'll say, wow, I need to stop that. Yeah, you do. And they, they conform their behavior to what? To what their knowledge has come to understand is sin. And they want to be obedient to the God that saved them. Psalm 128, verse 1 says, Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in his ways. Isaiah 51, verse 12 and 13 says, You fear mortal men, the sons of men, who are but grass. But you forget the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you live in constant terror every day because of the wrath of the oppressor. I mean, I think sometimes we're more fearful of our neighbor than we are of the Lord. 
What does this say to us? What do we conclude to all this? I mean, we have to kind of come to a point where we're almost undone by what we've been studying. And just in summary, I just want to share with you what we've seen here. Both Jew and Gentile have sinned against God. And he even threw in the believer there in Romans. And both Jew, Gentile, and not the Christian, Jew and Gentile stand accused before God. If you're a Christian, you know what? There's good news. If you've put your faith and trust in God, God does not accuse you any longer because your sins are forgiven. But we need to understand all human beings without exception are under sin. Sin negatively affects our relationships with God and with other people. You wonder why you can't get, around, get along with people around you? It's not you. It's not the other person. It's sin. You're both sinful people. I mean, think about it. You, you, you get married and you're thinking, well, this is just going to be sweet bliss, right? And you enter week three or month three or whenever it comes and you're going, whoa, this isn't what I signed up for. Well, what's the problem? Well, it's that, no, it's not the other person. It's both of you. You're both sinners and you both want your own way. And when you don't get it, what happens? Conflict. That's what happens. That happens in every relationship. Sin negatively affects our relationship. It also has destructive results. Don't ever think, beloved, for one second you're going to get away with something. That somehow you're just, you know, this isn't harming anybody. I'm doing this in the quietness of... No. If it's sin and you know it to be sin, it has destructive results. Trust me. All people need to hear the good news that God has provided a Savior from this ailment that we have, this curse of sin. We're the only people, as believers, who know and can share the truth which can free those people from the bondage of sin. I mean, if I asked you to come into my office after church and I showed you large stack of money on my desk. And I said, you know what? This is a gift to you and your family. Just go and enjoy it. After you picked yourself up off the floor, <laughs> good sum of money. Say, that's $100,000. You would probably, in your mind, start to think, oh, what am I going to do with this? this is, what a wonderful gift, $100,000. You start making plans. I'd like to pay the house off. I'd like to do this. I'd like to do that. I'd like to give some to the Lord. Do bless this family. Bless this, whatever. But your mind would be thinking. You would be planning. And you know what? You'd probably be excited about it. This would be something that you would enjoy laying out the spreadsheet with, right? You got a hundred grand to start with, man. How am I going to bless people with this? How am I going to use this for the glory of God? See, I want you to remember that you and I have the extreme privilege of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ, with people who are standing before God guilty in their sin. And this is a privilege that's infinitely more valuable and should be infinitely more exciting and rewarding than receiving a lump sum of money and figuring out how to spend it 
Let's bow our hearts before the Lord as we close this morning. I just want to ask you a couple things. First of all, I want you to do a couple things. I want you to ask God to never let you forget. Never let you forget that you were without him and that you were without hope. That at some point in your life, you were guilty in your own sin until you came to know Jesus. That's real important for us to remember those things because the longer we're Christians and the longer we fellowship together, the easier it is for us to kind of grow callous to those who are not part of the body of Christ. It's easier to look down our spiritual noses at people who may, maybe haven't come to know Christ yet. Maybe we even distance ourselves from such people. Put a wall of protection around us so we wouldn't be stained by such people. We look at the life of Christ. He did just the opposite. He ran into the mess with the solution. So I ask God never to help you, never to let you forget that you were without hope, you were without him at one point in your life until you came to know him. And then ask God to help you see every other person, every person in your life, every person who crosses your path, every person who is not a believer, as one who is without God, without hope. And that we should do whatever we can to point them to Christ. Examine your own heart with this. How have you been doing in this area? Right now, thank God specifically for Christ taking the full wrath, the full punishment of God for your sins when he was on the cross. Thank him for that. Thank him for being gracious to you, drawing you to himself. If you've never given your life to Christ, this is the time for you to acknowledge your sin. And if God's spirit is moving in your heart right now and you, you sense God drawing you to Christ, you, you need to respond. This doesn't just happen automatically. You confess your sin right there in your heart, silently before, before God. You confess your sin. You say the same thing about your sin that God says. It's wrong. And secondly, you accept the forgiveness that Jesus offers. He's the one who died to bear the sins of your own body. He's the one who rose that you might be made righteous. So you confess your sin and you receive him. Cry out to God, God be merciful to me a sinner. I come to you for this salvation. I pray you would make me clean before you. As believers, I pray that we would examine our own hearts, our own lives before we partake of our time of communion together. We thank you, Lord, that you've redeemed us, you've forgiven us. We were not righteous in and of ourselves. We could not understand. We did not seek you. We're basically altogether going the opposite direction. 
And yet you reach down and you put us on the right path. You've caused our hearts to seek you. You, you open our understanding. Christ made us what we could never be, righteous before you. And Lord, we thank you for that and we praise you. We ask you to bless our communion time together in Jesus' name. Amen.